Hey everyone, so today we're going to be lecturing on the physiology of the external ear. We have 386 slides to get through and lots of text on each slide, but don't you worry because we have a whole three hours to do it. Now, Hey there, and welcome to Pulmcast. My name is Jeremy, and I am back. Or should I say, welcome to our utopia, our med utopia. Med utopia? We're dreamers. John, what are we dreaming of? Dream a world where private practices focus on medical education nearly as much as our academic colleagues, but with our own private practice flair. You know, I dream of a world where there's no more death by PowerPoint, or flashy animations, or apologizing for crappy slides. Talks thrown together at the last minute. I also dream of a world where we can all train together. And by we, I don't just mean all of my PA friends training with me, or all of my doc friends training with me either. I mean, I want to train and learn right beside my nurse friends, RTs, PAs, everybody as an interdisciplinary staff of a world where our clinical education skills are valued and noticed by our peers and our supervisors. I dream of a world where we can go to conferences that are fun and educational and have Wi-Fi that works and people aren't apologizing for bad and cold coffee. Groups of like-minded individuals get together and learn from each okay, other. We're doing a lot of talking here, and we haven't Cut even introduced our uh, guest. So why don't we go ahead and do that? Because <laughs> um, he's just listening and wondering what's going I'm on. Lo- I'm loving every minute of it. <laughs> so we have Rob Rogers with us, and Rob Rogers, he's a professor of emergency medicine at the University of Kentucky. But I think the title he may actually want me to introduce him as is the Chief Imagination Officer at Medutopia. Rob, we are so happy to have you. Welcome. Oh, it's so great to be here. Now, what the audience out there may not know is that the product you're listening to right now, if it sounds good to you, which I hope it does, uh, wasn't always this way. If you throw back to some of our first sepsis episodes, sorry, John, I know this is going to hurt your feelings, but they were kind of trash. I spent a lot of time on that script, Jeremy. I know you did. A lot. I know. And we read it word for word. (laughs) We did. Every word. A couple years ago, we had the honor of going to the Lexington podcasting course that was put on by none other than Rob Rogers. And it really helped us to take our education to the next level. So for that, thank you. Good sir. We wanted to talk some about this idea of Medjutopia. And Rob, without me trying to tell everybody what Medjutopia is, can you share that concept with us? I can certainly try. As you can tell from my voice, I don't have much of a voice left. It started as just a project that I I wanted to do, you know, uh, make courses and podcasts. And it's blossomed into something that I never would have envisioned. Now that we've got people running our blog and podcasts soon and social media platform. So it's basically a think tank of talented individuals across the world who just want to spread the message of medical education. So you dream of a world where you can make products, make content that can help other healthcare providers, specifically helping other healthcare providers be innovative and creative themselves and take their own career to the next level. That's how you named the company. But how did you get this clarity that this is what you wanted to do with your career? 
Well, I've always been interested in education. Even when I was in residency, I did a couple of chief residency years. I was just always at the forefront of wanting to teach. And so it just naturally fell into place that I would create something that was separate by itself, creative, innovative, related to medical education. That's just pure love of teaching people. So I think what's awesome about the concept of Medjutopia is that's your Medjutopia. But I think almost anyone listening to this can essentially create their own Medjutopia. And we've definitely tried to do that kind of here in our own practice and try to create this hybrid educational program within a private practice that you don't see a lot of places do. And so just reflecting on kind of interviewing you today, that's the first thing that jumped out at me. Anyone can create their own Medjutopia and just run with it. Can we fluff out that concept a little bit? Because I know we're all in our own little Medjutopia, but is medicine not a Medjutopia already as it is? I mean, shouldn't we just be happy doing what we're doing? Oh, man. Probably, but we're not. So so even the logo of Medjutopia was designed with at least how I look at education. I think when you look at the logo, the dot on the eye is actually, I don't know if you have the logo in front of you, but it's actually really high up. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So that. so that was designed intentionally so that you're always reaching higher for your best self, so to speak. What I increasingly noticed over the years is that the, the gap between educators and learners seems to be getting bigger. We're not connecting enough. We're not motivating enough. We're not inspiring enough. And I truly believe that's sort of our mission is to sort of close that gap so that patients get better care. I love that concept. And I want to drill down on this idea that there's this gap between educators and learners right now. And as both an educator and a learner myself, I feel that. I feel when I am drilling down a hundred slide PowerPoint and just getting through content that you have to get through. That's what they have asked you to come to do is get through this laundry list of objectives. But I'm human and I can see the faces of my learners out in the audience. They are not paying attention anymore. And I hate it. They hate it. Why are we doing that? Why are we stuck teaching this way? Or are we stuck teaching this way? Yeah, I, I don't think so. I think the first step in any problem is realizing there is a problem. And I mean, we know there's a big problem. Lectures stink. Not, not, not all of them, but many of them, the slides are bad and they're poorly delivered. And we've lost touch with the fact that our job as an educator is not to passively give them knowledge and just throw them the chapter on pulmonary embolism. Your job's to inspire, motivate, try to connect with learners on a different plane. And it's not just throwing information at them. They can get that anywhere. If you were given, I don't know, let's take an EM topic, managing the traumatic airway. Okay. If you were given 10 objectives that you had to cover in 60 minutes, how would you approach that? Would you take the path of just covering all of the objectives or would you say, I will give you the resources so that you guys can cover the objectives and I'm going to sit here and inspire you about the traumatic airway. That's a good question because it comes up a lot when you have to give or when someone tells you you need to give a core content delivery. There's nothing worse than sitting through a 60 minute talk on board review. And I know it's mandatory in some places and you've just got to do it, but it's just, it's, you guys have done it, but it's terrible. It's just not, not a good use of time. I think if you inspire them, number one, to know that it's a, an important topic, it's potentially their family member, or you can tell stories, your own stories, patients you've taken care of, clinical photos, to sort of really emotionally drive home the fact that what you want them to learn matters to patients' lives. They'll want to learn it. I think part of the reason people struggle with that is because most of us have grown up in the death by PowerPoint era. We sat in school, we got lectured for hours on end, 
And then we didn't know how to study and we went home and just flipped the, through that PowerPoint we didn't listen to earlier in the day. And that's how we studied for the test, or at least that's how I did. And so I think we're starting to realize that's not the right way to do it. But your first reflex when given that study or given those objectives is to do that the way you grew up in. And then the other part of the reason why people don't do it as much is it just takes a lot more time and it's a lot harder. It takes a lot more high energy, creative, deep work to develop a more high intensity lecture or build in cases yeah. or, or do something creative, like add audio to your slides or anything like that. It just takes a lot more effort. And listen, you could make a boring talk on traumatic airway management, but I think what learners are going to really connect with is um, a powerfully well done video showing a real patient getting an emergency crike, for example. And maybe your only objective you cover for them in that live setting is to say, don't take your left hand off the larynx or you'll lose your landmarks or whatever it is. And then inspire them to go get the rest of it. Just you really kind of want to awaken learners and get them excited. I want to derail because I think that's such an important point. And it's a point that you bring up, Rob, all the time that the idea of the sage on the stage needs to be thrown away because a true educator is a learning choreographer. Can you speak to that? I like it because that term encompasses more of what we really do. I mean, we are educators, but I think when people hear educator, they think we, that's us just giving a lecture or drawing on a board. We're looking after every bit of the learner's lives. We are looking after their wellness. And if, you know, if they need to go eat and you're taking care of them during the shift, you're looking after their hidden curriculum, what they learn when they're not reading the books and stuff. And you are sort of a choreographer of, of all of it. It's a, I think it's a much more sophisticated description of how we take care of a learner's life than the word educator is. Yeah. So it's a busy ER shift. You've got a stack of charts piling up and you've got a first year intern with you off service from a different department. Oh boy. <laughs> You're really building the picture. Here. <laughs> Can I call in sick? <laughs> How do you educate that person who may or may not have any interest in your specialty in a timely manner that doesn't slow you down? I mean, if they're not interested in learning at all, that's a big problem. If they're not interested, let's say they're from orthopedics or, you know, whatever, that doesn't mean they don't want to learn. It's, it's tough. I'm by no means the expert and have never made mistakes. When it's busy and it's hitting the fan, you got to move along. What I try to always tell myself is that teaching them something right then and there or failure to teach them something right then and there could lead to a bad outcome for a patient. They don't recognize a disease or know how to do a procedure. So you can do it quickly. You can just say, listen, we're going to do this really quickly. It's very busy. We'll come back and recircle. But I know you saw this person with the sore throat. Come in here and look at this real quick. That's what a PTA looks like. Boom, you're finished. I love your concept of being an educator sniper rather than shotgunning. Pick one really high yield point about that patient. If you like to teach, you like to talk. And how much of what someone says for 20 minutes is retained That's a shotgun blast. I mean, you're literally just covering everything. People just don't remember that. Drawing the coagulation cascade in the emergency department is a waste of time. (laughs) It just is. (laughs) As opposed to saying, you know, hey, this person's on Xarelto and has a head bleed. What do we need to give them? Mm. And then boom, that's your teaching point. And then that's it. That's it. Don't try anything else. Because that's where failure starts is when you try to teach too much. So day in and day out, you're grinding away shifts in the ER. I'm assuming if you're anything like me, there has to be a point in the month where you're maybe not feeling it as much as you were, you know, say in the beginning of the month. How do you inspire other learners when you may not be feeling inspired yourself? Wow, that's a deep question. <laughs> um, and it's a reminder of how many times I've done this poorly. 
listen, we're all human and we're all going to have bad days, bad months, whatever. I try to the best of my ability, whether it's a student resident, I always think back to the days when I was a student and was so energetic and I wanted to know everything and I was scared and how good it felt to have an attending physician say something to me, whether it was a teaching pearl, you know, a pat on the back, something. I, I remember what it felt like. And I think if you can try in your life not to forget what it was like to be in those shoes, you'll never forget it. They won't forget it either. I think it'll carry with you. But I think you have to constantly re-energize yourself. Some days I'll leave thinking, you know, this was just not a great day. You just have to re-energize yourself. One thing that you mentioned in Grand Rounds that ironically impacted me was asking yourself, what is your impact factor? What is it that you are going to be remembered for by your learners, the nurses, your patients, the respiratory therapists, your attendings, colleagues? And I think that has a tremendous impact and influence on how you come into shift every single day. I think it's called the butterfly effect. Have you heard of this? Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. It's a great movie. Ashton Kutcher. I think he, he, he and there's a movie called the butterfly yeah, effect. Yeah, Ashton Kutcher, no. can, yeah, I'll send it to you. It's I mean, it's old. It's like uh, to early 2000 yeah. something, but it's a it's a yeah. pretty good it's movie pretty based good movie. on that concept. Yeah. Based on that concept. Yes. Really? It's called the butterfly effect. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I just got the butterfly. I just got educated. <laughs> <laughs> it's millennials with their new movies. Yeah. Millennials in their Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> So speaking to millennials, then uh, I'm a millennial. So please hold the jokes. I, if it, as long as they're uh, they're not offensive, you can tell them. No, I'm just kidding. What is this whole social media in medical education thing? Do we actually need all of our physicians to be on Twitter? Is this a, is this a pipe dream? What are we using social media in medical education for? Yeah, I think it's a pipe dream to think that everyone is going to be on the same platform and it's going to be just nice and streamlined and easy. So I don't know that you'll ever get everybody together. And we talked about your personal impact factor. You have the ability to impact so many more people when you amplify your teaching message on social media because it does go global. And here's the cool thing. I've gotten feedback over the years from people in other countries and they email me back and say, what you taught me on Twitter today helped me save a life, which when you think about that statement, it's just insane. I mean, when's the last time someone told you something that I read in Tintin Alley today <laughs> Help me save. I mean, like mm-hmm. they're sure. thanking you for information that you gave them that they actually used on a real patient. Now you could get into the dangers of, are you recommending things that are actually supported by evidence-based medicine? And that's probably beyond the scope of this talk, but you're helping people all over the world. So I think just amplifying your message of goodness is really what it's all about. Social media allows you to do that. So you called social media and Twitter specifically a career accelerator really letting you set the stage for where your career trajectory is going and what your brand is. And I I think for all of us in private practice, that is something that really resonates with us because we don't have this traditional med ed ladder in the private practice world where, you know, the next step is this or this rank. How have you used social media to accelerate your career as a medjurpreneur, as you call it? Well, in academics, 
going from assistant professor to associate professor to full professor. I'm in it. I live in it. It's my world. But the more and more I look at just all of those terms, yeah, I guess you get some street credit within academics for being a professor, but I'll say it right here on the podcast. The title of professor means nothing to me. It doesn't define who I am or what I do. I think getting involved in social media has led me to people over the years who have helped me develop a life trajectory that never would have happened without social media. So true. I mean, even in our young careers, we've seen that just opportunities that show up if you put yourself out there and do it. If you're interested in some topic and you start commenting on someone who's famous in that topic and they start interacting back with you and it takes time. I mean, investing in social media is it's not like an immediate you're going to get wealthy and invited to all these places in the world. But slowly over time, if people know you're genuinely interested in something, it does lead to stuff. And, Mm -hmm. you know, my wife can tell you she's been to countries that she never would have visited because I got invited to go speak at something related to knowing someone through social media involvement. And then my kids get to go. And so there is an intangible benefit to your life, just knowing people around the world. What I really appreciate as a PA in social media is the ability of specifically med Twitter to flatten hierarchies. There is no barrier to experts in the field who want to interact with other thought leaders in medicine, no matter what your title is. I mean, the level of access to experts in the field is unprecedented as a new grad PA one year out of school. Now, what are your younger learners on? Which platforms are they most on these days? Is it Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, all of the above? I would say Instagram and, and Snapchat, most of the students and residents. When I say learn the space they like to learn in, it doesn't mean like invade it and be obnoxious about it because nobody wants a professor of EM like snooping around their Snapchat and mm. sending them weird pictures. I mean, <laughs> that's not what I'm suggesting. Like Sarah Medeiros does a wonderful job teaching ultrasound on Instagram. She's mm. a good example of you just put out good content that helps people. Then the residents see that and they're like, oh, cool Instagram post. That's it. I think you've accomplished it. Absolutely. I want to talk about you live tweeting your uh, left heart catheterization. What? What? <laughs> what? What even crossed your mind to think about posting that? What was your? What went through your head? For our listeners out there, maybe we should tell the story of of what actually happened. <laughs> I remember seeing that post, and I had the initial reaction that a lot of people responded to your post on, which was, oh my gosh, he accidentally left the patient name up there. Right, right. right. Now, I didn't go as far as be like, you got a HIPAA on there, dude, take it down. I was like, wow, his patient name's on there. Then I did a double take. I was like, wait a second. Yeah. That's his name. I did, I did that absolutely on purpose <laughs> to see how many HIPAA statements <laughs> I, I awesome. would get. So if you don't know, Rob Rogers had a full-blown STEMI in MI, what, two years ago? Yeah, uh, two and a half, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And within a couple hours of having it, posted his EKG on there with his name for all to see. And then later posted his actual left heart cat the same day. What was the general reception Why? of that? Yeah. Uh, well, the, the reception was, what's wrong with you? <laughs> I remember being wheeled into the cath lab and they hadn't taken my phone from me yet, which is a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't. Please take my phone. Because I asked the cardiologist, and I I didn't know him until that point. I said, can I video this? And he looked at me like you're looking at me now. Like, are you? I know this is a family show. Are you effing crazy? And he just laughed. He said, no. I said, can't one of the nurses just hold? Like, there's like 18 nurses in there, it seems like. Mm -hmm. Um, The number gets bigger every time. But he's like, no, you can't film the calf. That's stupid. 
<laughs> I think the immediate reason was, holy crap, this is happening to me. Holy crap, this is going to happen to somebody else, somebody I know. So the immediate reaction was, this has to go out because this is going to happen to somebody else. Has that changed how you think about resiliency in medical education and your own personal well-being and how you approach wellness in med ed? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've dropped 50, 60 pounds. I eat well, except for ostrich bolognese that I had last night with <laughs> you guys. That was delicious. It was. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm at the gym five days a week. I'm, I'm doing the stuff to keep in shape that I should have been doing my whole life. It's also made me realize that as a whole, we've done such a bad job looking after learners, right? We look after learners from a standpoint of, did you get the content? Okay. Bye. See ya. We, we've really done a poor job, like looking after their health and having a mandatory once a year checkbox lecture on suicide is not enough. It's, it's just stupid. And that sort of wraps into the learning choreographer term, because I think that term encompasses everything. Are your learners healthy? The question that I was taught by a friend in Kentucky was the double tap question. Have you heard of this? Mm-hmm. You guys and girls frequently see people around and you're like, Hey, how's it going? And they're like, nah, it's okay. It'd be better. And what's your response typically? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Bummer. But yeah, yeah. Bummer. Yeah. Or like, Oh, sorry. sorry. Keep chin up. Sorry. Or sorry. I asked. But then that's the end of it, right? So the first question is, are you okay? How you doing? And they, they're like, eh, I could be better. And then you're like, no, really, how you doing? What I've noticed is that people who are having any issues frequently will open up during the second question. So I called the double tap. A friend of mine in California, probably eight months ago, nine months ago, I, I was talking to him on the phone. And I said, how you doing? He's like, I'm not doing too well. I've seen better times. And, but he quickly changed the subject. And I said, no, what, really, what's going on? And turns out he was suicidal right then. Me asking the double tap question saved his life, honestly. And he got help. He's doing fine now after therapy. So my my point is I ask a lot more second questions of learners. You guys have no doubt noticed that learners, there's so much more depression and anxiety than there ever was before. Mm -hmm. A lot of it's related to social media use, other reasons as well. But if you're going to call yourself an educator or, or a learning choreographer, you got to know the double tap questions. You got to know how to take care of people and know when their ship is sinking before it sinks. My MI changed how I look at the non-educational components of learners, the hidden curriculum, their health, their all of it. I think that's such an important point. And Absolutely. as I've grown as an educator, I have really learned that much of education, much of doing this learning choreography is really deep emotional work. Yeah. And really developing emotional intelligence to check in with your learners at every step, being humble, saying this is not going to be perfect. How can we make it better? And to that end, I want to also talk about feedback. Feedback is something that's important for education. It needs to be a two-way street. But I have a really hard time separating what learners like the things that they tell you in feedback that aren't good and what's best for learners. Because I find when things are stressful and hard, they don't like that. Even if it's good for their learning, good for their education. And learning is supposed to be hard. It's supposed to hurt a little bit as you're learning. Well, giving feedback is tough and there's an art to it. First of all, I think as educators, we should be asking learners to give you feedback as an educator. It's humbling to ask it or to even consider thinking about asking it. But asking a learner, like a med student that I would be teaching, for example, to give me feedback on my education on the spot. It's kind of weird. We're always giving them feedback. Mm. We think we know everything and we don't. 
There's a guy in Chicago. I th- I'm, he may be retired now. David Howells, an emergency physician that attended a talk I gave years ago at SAM on feedback. He came up to me afterwards and I'll never forget because he had this wonderful, caring way of giving feedback that I'd never heard described because we all know that if someone does something wrong and you walk up to them, you're like, listen, I need to give you some feedback. We know that the feedback sandwich is just crap. You dressed really well today. You have a beautiful smile. You nearly killed that patient, but I like your shoes. So the feedback sandwich, I just don't think it works. You know, sandwiching positives on each side. You train them to not listen to the first comment, hear the bad comment, ruminate on it and ignore the. Yeah, exactly. Or if you, if you try the Kentucky, you know, the open face sandwich, mm. give them the negative. And then, <laughs> uh, it, doesn't, it just doesn't work. And I think we're so bad at giving feedback. The way Dave Howes explained it is it's all in the way you deliver it. He said he walked into a room of a patient getting a central line being placed by an ENT resident, and this resident wasn't doing it correctly. And so instead of walking in and saying, no, 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 don't do it like that. That's wrong. He said, let me show you a better way to do it. And there's actually some talk recently on Twitter from Teresa Chan from Canada. There's a table that just came out on Twitter on the phrases that you can use to give feedback. And it's just tweaking the way you say it. I think that takes the sting out of it. No, 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 no. Don't do it like that. that that's wrong. That's not that you're going to cause a pneumothorax. You can certainly try it like that. But if you want them to learn, And it's just interesting. And it's not making it soft. It's just the way you phrase it opens their brain up to receptiveness. If they sense that harm is coming, right? We all shut down feedback. Mm -hmm. My face will get red and I can't stand it. But if you just tweak the phraseology, it opens up everything. Psychological safety and learning, so important and something we're not very good at managing. It's uncomfortable. You know, we are not good at making people feel comfortable in general. I think it's really, really hard to do. Your point about asking them for feedback on how you're educating, you also talk a lot about modeling good behavior on shift and be the good educator that you want your learners to be. I think that's perfect modeling how to get and receive feedback for your learners when you ask them for your own feedback. So can you tell me if you believe this or not? Textbooks are dead and nobody should read anymore. Instead, we should just listen to podcasts, videos, blogs, you know, the new media, because it's the digital era. They're on their way out. We haven't truly come up with a curriculum that's completely non-textbook based. It's probably coming. It's probably close. I don't know when it will happen. It may never happen. Talk to any publisher who makes these big textbooks for any specialty. They're panicking as well. They know that sales are down. That's why they include CDs with their books and website access. And and in fact, you can get most textbooks just web access to the textbook without actually having a physical copy of it, but you have to pay a lot of money. So I don't think it's dead, but I think it's certainly diminishing. Do you still encourage your residents to read textbooks? Yeah, I do. I wish they would read more. And honestly, if I know that they're reading material that covers the core knowledge that I think they need, I don't know that I necessarily care where it comes from as long as it's a relatively vetted source, obviously. Sure. And your comments earlier during your grand rounds talk about the Swiss cheese education really stuck with me, mostly because I was a victim of Swiss cheese education, where we are listening to podcasts with advanced topics missing the basics. Yes, absolutely. And you talked about, you know, residents learning about delayed sequence intubation when they didn't know the first thing about basic airway management. I think that there's such a role for core content in podcasts and just something we've noticed. And we try to do a variety of different kinds of episodes and we release a mix of core content interviews and, and we surprisingly find the core content episodes get more listens than the other. So I think there is a need out there for it. Oh, Absolutely. There's podcasts like Core EM and EM Basic that are really yep. doing this really well. 
hopefully more of those will come about in all different specialties. All right. So if you could rewind back however many years when young Rob Rogers first knew he wanted to be an educator and you could tell him one thing to change (laughs) the trajectory of Rob Rogers educational career, what would you tell young Rogers? This is a family show. (laughs) We're talking education, right? Uh, Um, there's so many things. I would say the one thing I would have wanted to know more about, I mean, some of these that I would have loved being involved in simply just weren't around. I mean, the iPhone didn't come around until 2007. So yeah, I wish these technologies were available when I was the young Rob Rogers, but I think if I could change what I invested my time in learning, I think I would have learned more entrepreneurial skills sooner, you know, so that I could put those into place you know, not be nearly 50 years old and doing them. Hmm. Yeah. Like learning, you know, the basics of running a business, the basics of creating. Uh, and again, a lot of the technologies weren't available. So yeah, just entrepreneurial stuff, I think is, is one, one big segment. Yeah. Well, Rob, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Like I said, it's so great to have you on here when you were one of the first people who inspired us to try to even feel like we could make a great podcast in the first place. So oh, it's an honor. Us. It's an honor. I'm sorry my voice was so uh, shot. So for Pwncasters out there, we hope that you've gotten the message that education, it's not about lecturing. It's not about podcasting. It's not about writing. And it's certainly not about climbing the corporate ladder. Education's about inspiring others to greatness. And we dream of a world where everybody out there in medicine is doing that. This is our Megatopia. What's yours? <laughs>